You're listening to the weekly sermon from Antioch East Baptist Church, located in Magnolia, Arkansas. For more information about our faith and local congregation, visit AntiochEast.com. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. This is a simple sermon, in part because this is a very echoey room. but also because I don't really have anything extravagant for you today, except maybe to lift your eyes above your troubles for 30 minutes, above pestilence, above lawlessness, above chaos, and spend a few minutes looking at the king who is sitting above it all, who has not changed, whose rule has not wavered, who has not made mistakes, who is the same as he has always been and always will be. Let's read, starting in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Now the first question to answer regarding this text, really before we even get into it, is who is this servant? Who is the servant that Isaiah is prophesying about? Now there's a good Sunday school answer, and it's right, but let me show you how you get there uh, briefly. Some people suggest that Israel is the servant. That's not completely wrong, but when Isaiah was writing this, and really at any time, Israel was very disobedient. Israel was very faithless, uh, even in her glory days. So the servant can't be just Israel, plain and simple. I think a better answer is that this servant in Isaiah 42 and other places in Isaiah, this servant is Israel as she should have been, or as she was supposed to be. Israel was called to be faithful to God, covenant keepers, and that's who this servant is. But as I said, Israel did not do that. They they did not fulfill that purpose. So who came in Israel's place? Jesus. Jesus came, and he was the true and greater servant of God. Where his people had failed, he came and did the work. He was the true and greater Israel. And and you can go through all the Old Testament, the true and greater David, the true and greater Moses, the true and greater Joshua. It's Jesus. So inevitably, this passage is about Christ, 
That's who's being prophesied about. Matthew 12 supports that, which we will not get into this morning. So this is a messianic prophecy. It's about the Messiah to come. And we're going to walk through the text with that understanding. So we've established that, and we're going to move forward. So with that in mind, I think that these four verses answer three questions about Jesus. It doesn't answer everything. Uh, we, we would never have enough sermons to answer everything about Christ. That's what John says at the end of his gospel, basically. But there are three questions that this text answers about Jesus. And we're just going to go through them this morning. First of all, who is Christ? Who is Christ? Verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Who is Christ? He is the chosen one of God. There's your answer. Simple sermon. He is the chosen one of God, the elect one of God. Verse 1 says immediately that Christ is upheld by God, my servant whom I uphold. Now the word uphold means to support. It's the same word used in Exodus 17 when Israel is fighting the Amalekites. And you remember Moses had to keep his hands raised. And so Aaron and Hur... Uh, grabbed Moses' arms and supported them, held them up. Isaiah is saying that in every matter, Christ has the support of the Father. Christ has the support of God. Even when Christ is swallowed up in death for the immeasurable sins of his people, God comes and raises him from the dead. Or, for example, in the second psalm, Psalm chapter 2, we see the kings and nations uh, wanting to rebel against God and against this king. But verse 4 says this, He who sits in heavens, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Christ always has the support of the Father. Always, always, always. And it's clear that if you oppose Jesus, you are opposing the Godhead, the triune God. You cannot separate them. You can't do it. And then, continuing through verse 1, we read explicitly that Christ is the elect one of God. Or most translations say the chosen one of God. Now there are millions of people whom God has graciously brought out and chosen for salvation. Revelation 7, gathered around a throne and, and unnumberable, innumerable, innumerable number is gathered around. You, you, you can't number the amount of people saved by the gospel. But there's only one Messiah. That's what's being talked about here. There are many citizens in the kingdom of God, but there's only one king. It's Christ, the chosen one. And he certainly 
lives up to that choice. He lives up to that election. He, he succeeded where Adam failed, where everyone failed before him, where everyone was weak. He was strong, where everyone was faithless. He was faithful. Even his disciples abandoned him and they didn't have to go through what he was going to go through. Therefore, Isaiah says in verse 1 that God delights in Christ. Jesus is the delight of God. He's the spotless lamb. He has no blemish in his beauty. There's no weakness in his armor. He has no frailty. He has no hidden flaw. He has no secret vice hiding in his closet. Christ is the joy of God. And God delights in him. You need to understand this. God delights in Christ because of Christ's work. He doesn't delight in you because of your work. You're saved by grace. But he delights in Christ because of his work. Christ earned your salvation. And he worked for his throne. That's what Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11 says. I love that passage. I reference it all the time. Jesus was obedient, obedient to the point of death. And that's why God exalts him as king. You have a strong, capable Messiah. You have a deep-chested Savior who does not fail. He does the work. He succeeds. And if that was not enough, if, if that sentence was not enough to convince you of the, the magnificence and the perfection of Jesus, we read again in verse 1 that God has put his spirit upon him. You see the whole trinity right there in that clause. The Father puts the Spirit on the Son incarnate. The Father puts the Spirit on the Son incarnate. He doesn't put the Spirit in the Son. That's the difference. He doesn't put the Holy Spirit into the Messiah, but upon Him to, to assist Him in His work, to help Him. So the Father chose Christ as Messiah. The Spirit assists Christ as Messiah. And the Messiah is the Son Himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The, the full glory of the eternal triune God is resting on this Christ. In Christ, all the, the glories and the wonders of the Mysterious triune God are made plain to us, accessible, touchable. Or as, as Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ is the chosen one of God, the elect one of God. There's no one else like him. There's no one else like him. 
And so as the chosen one of God, what the, practically what that means is that today all of God's grace and judgment comes through Jesus. Today all of God's grace and all of God's judgment comes through Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, we receive heavenly blessings in Christ and only in Christ. And then uh, Romans 2, who's going to judge the secrets of men? Christ. Grace and judgment. That, that's why we pray to God in Jesus' name. It's not just a meaningless habit. We, we come before the Father in the name of His chosen Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's also why the most basic Christian confession is that Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 10, right? So if there is a man like this, it sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? It's like a perfect setup. If there is a man who has the ear of God like Jesus does, if there is a redeemer in whom the Father perfectly delights, if there is a servant who the the, the Holy Spirit rests upon and assists like Jesus, then I say we must have peace with Him. We must have peace with this Messiah. You, there's no other option. There's no other option. You cannot oppose Him. It will be your ruin. It will be your downfall. It will be your suffering if you oppose Him. Let us have peace with this King. So that's the first question. Who is Christ? Who is Christ? Christ is the chosen one of God, the elect one of God. Now, second of all, the second question, second question this passage answers, what will Christ do? What will Christ do? And the answer is found uh, throughout the text. At the end of verse 1, Christ will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. The end of verse 3, he will bring forth justice for truth. The end of verse 4, till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What will Christ do? Christ will bring justice. Simple. Christ will bring justice. He's the chosen one of God who will bring his law over all the earth. Now, the day when this happens is not revealed. Right? We don't, we don't know March 14th, 2050. I don't know. Don't edit that out. That's not a prediction. Uh, we, we don't know the day. But the fact that it will happen is plain. And it is promised. Now, Isaiah mentions the coastlands, or I think your translation might say islands. I think his point here at the end of verse 4 is that there's not going to be a single place on earth that's left unconquered by Jesus. There's not going to be a, a, a small Pacific island or a, an obscure hill in Scotland. There's no small village in South America that, that will escape the rule of Jesus. Everything. He has authority over it right He has all authority over it right now, and it will all be brought to justice, righteousness, and judgment. His law will have dominion. 
Now, you may not understand the practical significance of that. Let me say it one more time before I explain it. Jesus' law, God's law, will prove victorious in the end. That's what our text says. That's important because today it is easy to feel like you are on the losing team or side. There is horrible moral decay in our society. Horrible. You don't, even as Christians, we, we don't, you don't even understand. It's like a frog that's been boiling in water. And you, you turn the heat up a little bit more and a little bit more. You don't even understand how wicked our society has become. And on top of all of that, there's uh, Marxist ideologies that are, seem so powerful, and you're thinking, where did that come from? <laughs> I thought the Cold War ended 40 years ago. I feel lowly when I think about that sometimes. I feel weighted down, like, like we're losing. We're losing the fight. We're losing the, the war. But this text, this text that I did not write, but the Spirit wrote, the Spirit of God inspired through the prophet Isaiah, this text promises victory. It promises victory. And you can't see how because you're in the trenches. You're in close combat. You don't understand the grand plan. You don't understand how, but it is promised right here. Man's law will not win. It will not prove victorious. The, the law of planned parenthood will not prove victorious. God's law will win in the end. Because Christ will be victorious. Even, even the coastlands will receive his law. So we should not lose heart. We should not be discouraged. We are often. But we should not. We should not. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. With or without a pandemic. With or without riots. We are believers. That means we believe the promises of God. And God has promised justice. Do you believe? Now, these are hard times. There's no doubt about that. No, there's no doubt about that, that these are hard times. But hard times do not excuse faithlessness. Hard times are not an excuse to abandon the promises of God. So the second question, what will Christ do? Christ will bring justice. He will bring justice. Now third and finally, third question, how will Christ do this? How, how will Christ bring justice? What, what, what is his demeanor as he brings justice to the earth? Well, I think there's two answers to this in our text. There's two answers. First of all, he will do it with confidence. He will do it with confidence. Verse 2 begins to explain this. Verse 2 says that he will not cry out nor raise his voice, 
nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. For example, Christ's ministry was never about popularity, was it? In fact, he often told people, don't, don't tell others what I just did. And they're like, what are you talking about? I can see for the first time in my life. Christ never sought the adoration of crowds. He never sought affirmation from men. He simply came and he did what he was supposed to do. And he's still doing that. Now you may be thinking, okay, well, how does, what does that have to do with confidence? Well, I think noise is often linked with insecurity or no confidence. People who cry out and cause a ruckus are usually anxious about their own abilities and authority. It's a, I heard someone call this a Barney Fife syndrome. How many of y'all have seen the Andy Griffith show? If, if your hand didn't go up, man, you gotta go watch that. Right, Barney Fife is the uptight police officer who's, who's always waving his badge in people's faces, right? He's got a pistol, his bullet's in his pocket, but he wants you to know he's got it. He's in charge, he's the law. Isaiah is saying that Christ is not like that. He chose to be the Christ instead of just telling everyone he was the Christ. You, you understand. He chose to just do the work. And he's still doing that today. You say, what, what do you mean he's still doing that today? Well, we tell everyone about Christ. We, we spread the glory of Christ. But Christ himself is not doing that. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father today. So, for example, there are... There are atheists gathered in lecture halls and library rooms today who are laughing at Christianity. They're laughing at Christ. They're scoffing at it. And if, if you could look up and see a glimpse of heaven over those atheists, you would see the throne of Christ and the King of Kings ruling over them. He's not crying out. He's not causing a ruckus. He's being patient. He's not worried about their laughter. Right. Or in China, there's, there's a strong, wicked communist party in China who is persecuting the church, scoffing at the supposed power of this Jesus. And over China... There is a throne, an eternal throne, and an everlasting Savior. And he's not crying out. There, are, there aren't, there's not fire and brimstone falling from the sky today. But he's sitting there, patient, confident. China does not worry Christ. You understand, he's confident. Now, one day he will silence them, right? He will silence them, but today is a day of patience, of salvation, of grace. That, that by the way, if you want to read Matthew 12, that, that's the application that Matthew draws from this passage, that Christ is uh, 
the judge and the king and bringing justice, and yet he's patient right now with even his enemies. So I think that demonstrates the confidence of Christ. He knows who he is. He knows the power and authority that he has. He knows what he will accomplish. That This is the quiet determination of someone who knows he's going to be victorious. He knows he's going to be victorious. And we find this explicitly at the beginning of verse 4. Christ will not fail nor be discouraged. It's impossible for him to fail. It's impossible. He will bring justice. It's impossible for him to even be discouraged or to waver or to have doubts about his own ability. I mean, this is an intimidating figure, right? People, people put on poker faces or they, they try to look tough when they go into a boxing ring. And you do that because you don't want to betray what your actual weaknesses are. But Christ does not have weaknesses. He's confident. So how will Christ bring justice? First of all, he will do it confidently. He'll do it with confidence. Now second and finally, the second answer to this question, and this brings me into my my final point and then our conclusion today. So Christ will bring justice with confidence. And while he brings justice, second of all, he will not ruin the weak. He will not ruin the weak. I find this in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Now, this might surprise you if you haven't studied this passage, because this, this passage is used in a lot of different ways. But bear with me for the next 10 minutes, okay? Uh, this is actually referring to Christ's enemies. Matthew says that the bruised reeds are the Pharisees. This is referring to Christ's enemies. Christ's enemies are bruised reeds and, and smoking flax or flickering candles. A reed is weak. It's not a tree, it's a reed. And here we have a bruised reed. Can't get much more frail than that. And that's, that's what Jesus' enemies are to him. They're just bruised reeds lying in a field. It would be nothing for Christ to snap them into. It would take nothing, no effort. And we also have smoking flax or, or a flickering candle, for example. It's just smoldering grass. It's like a fire that can't quite start. It would be nothing for Christ to wet the ends of his fingers and just pinch the fire out. That's who Christ's enemies are to him. That's who the Pharisees were. That's what the whole Roman Empire was. That's what all these problems that you have in America today, that's what they are to Christ. They're nothing. Bruised reeds and flickering candles. It's nothing. And yet, read it again. And yet, a bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoking flax, he will not quench. This is the definition of meekness 
You have strength, but you choose not to show it all or exert it all. Christ, Christ chooses to be patient and merciful even with his enemies, even in the tale of the prodigal son. Uh, the, the older son probably referring to the Pharisees, Christ still leaves it open-ended. They could repent and stay in the Father's house, right? This is a day of salvation, of patience, of grace. And so today Christ chooses not to ruin the weak graciously. So that's the picture of Christ that I believe we see in those four verses. It's, it's very simple, three questions. Who is Christ? He's the chosen one of God. What will Christ do? He's going to bring justice to every corner of this earth. Nothing will be forgotten or left out. And third of all, how is he going to do this? He's going to do this with confidence and with mercy. He's going to do this with confidence and with mercy. These are the glorious Truths that we learned about Christ in this passage. Now, it is no uh, secret that there are a great many lowly people in the kingdom of God. There are a great many lowly people in the church. A great many of us are poor in spirit, in physical means. A great many of us are destitute. A great many of us are just needy in general. In any way you want to slice that pie. But I, I want to leave you with this thought this morning, brothers and sisters. If Christ is patient with his enemies... How patient do you think he is with his friends? If Christ is gentle with hateful Pharisees and murderous Romans, how gentle do you think he is with his wife, the church? He, well, will he grow impatient? Will he grow impatient with your constant need for repentance? No. Will he lose his temper because you sin daily, returning to the same sins oftentimes? No. Will he become vexed and annoyed that you are always talking to him and praying to him and petitioning him about the same things over and over? No. No. Will he grow weary of your pleading? Will he grow weary of interceding for you before the Father? It's been so many years, they're still sinning. Do I really have to keep interceding for them before the throne of God? No, he's not going to grow tired of that. Beloved, when you need him, will he stay far off? No. Will he groan when it comes time for your resurrection, thinking, oh my goodness, I have to spend forever with this person? No, 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 no. 
if Christ has mercy for his enemies, then surely he has mercy for us who were his enemies, but by grace have been brought into the house of God. Right? You see? You see? Have you ever known a king so kind, a lord so kind? I assure you, you, you will never find a more gracious master than Christ. Certainly not with Satan. Certainly not with your sins. Why do we still have pet sins? Why, why do we still have vices that we're harboring? Do you think that that sin is going to be a more gracious and gentle Lord than Jesus? It cannot be. There is no sin that leads you with an easy yoke. There is no sin that gives you a light burden. It's all heavy and disastrous. Now, some of you, like I said, have lowly spirits. You're anxious and fearful about a virus. Maybe you're angry to the point of sin about riots. Maybe you're lonely, selfish. That's everybody. Convicted of sin. You're lowly in spirit. And others of us, maybe more than the spirit, were lowly of body, weak, frail, old perhaps. You feel like you can't do much. You may not feel useful. You may not feel practical. And in this room, there are many people lowly in spirit. There are many people lowly in body. But listen to me. There is a king who does not break Bruce Reed's. There exists a king who does not put out flickering candles. And you say, but I'm a bruised reed. I'm a flickering candle. Great. He will have you. He will have you, my friend. Christ is the savior of deplorables. He's the benefactor of poor accounts. He's the older brother of weak men. And he is the great king of a great many lowly. And he will mend your bruises and kindle your affections if you will come to him again today.